This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. Welcome to Passport to Everywhere. I'm Melissa Biggs Bradley, and today I'm speaking with British designer Jasper Conran about how he transformed Villa Mabruka, the former home of Yves Saint Laurent in Tangier, Morocco, into a fabulous new hotel. Later on, I'll be revealing some exciting intel for my latest travels to Florence. And if you've started planning your holiday travels but don't want to leave your beloved pet behind, I've got travel tips coming up at the end of today's episode. Jasper Conran has always been passionate about design, which may be because his parents, Sir Terence Conran and Shirley Conran, were legendary tastemakers themselves. But at just 19, Jasper launched his first line of women's wear, and the very next year, he was invited to participate in the London designer collections. Later, he launched menswear lines and famously designed the wedding dress for Lady Sarah Chateau, the granddaughter of Queen Elizabeth, as well as clothes for Princess Diana. In addition to women's and menswear, Jasper has created collections of accessories, luggage, crystal stemware, china tableware, furniture, perfumes, and fireplaces, among many other projects. Jasper also has a passion for the performing arts and has designed sets and costumes for 13 plays, ballets, and operas, including Simon Callow's touring production of My Fair Lady and Swan Lake for the Scottish Ballet's Theatre Royal performance in Glasgow. In 2010, he published his first book, a photographic essay called Country, Exploring the English Countryside Through His Own Experiences. Jasper has received numerous accolades for his extensive work, including being awarded an Order of the British Empire in 2008, an honor in Britain recognizing accomplishments in the fields of arts and sciences. He's built a strong brand identity in his label, Jasper Conran London, and his collections combine modern style, bold color, and long-lasting quality. He ventured into travel in 2016 with his first hotel acquisition in Marrakesh, where he transformed a 19th-century Riyadh into L'Hotel Marrakesh. For Jasper's latest hotel, which will be the focus of our conversation today, he renovated the former home of Yves Saint Laurent, into the now Villa Mabruka, which translates to House of Luck in Arabic. The 12-room oasis overlooking the Strait of Gibraltar and the North Atlantic Sea is located in the Moroccan city of Tangier and beautifully captures the vibrant spirit of North Africa. I was lucky to be with Jasper last year just before it opened when I was on one of our trips to Tangier, as it's one of my favorite design destinations and a place that we take insider travelers to every single spring and fall. I'm so excited to welcome Jasper here with me today to dive into the inspiration behind his world-renowned aesthetic and get an inside look at Villa Mabruka. As we talk about Tangier, I'd be remiss not to mention the devastating 6.8 earthquake that struck Morocco this past September. Our Indigari COO, Eliza Harris, was actually in the Atlas Mountains outside of Marrakesh when it happened. She shared a personal reflection on her experience and its aftermath, including her take on the travel industry's responsibility with our Indigari community. 
While the Atlas Mountains sustained heavy damage, we've continued to have some Indigari members on the ground experiencing the wonders of Morocco since September and supporting the local communities. For more on the story, head to Indigari.com. Now, Jasper, let's get started. At what point in your life, I think it was very early, did you know that you wanted to be into design? I, I think that for me, I have a very privileged ringside seat on design. You know, I, I was thinking about this. And of course, I grew up with my father, who was, you know, was starting Habitat. And my mother, who was a fashion editor and a woman's editor. So between them, you know, I saw the birth of sort of design in this country. Um, you know, I met all the designers. Mary Pont was my godmother. You know, I, <laughs> I realized it was a very, very, very interesting place to be. It would be very strange if I wasn't interested in design. But um, yeah, so it, it was surrounding me all the time. You know, whether it be the houses or furniture or gardens or fashion or food, I was immersed in that, I realized. And can you sort of pull at threads of your own aesthetic sensibility and say, okay, my interest in this or my leaning towards this comes from my father or this comes from my mother? Because as you said, I mean, they were very strong influences, obviously, but they also had very strong perspectives. Well, I think for sure, for instance, I get my feminism from my mother because she, you know, she was a, she was very much in the forefront of the feminist movement. And so that when I'm thinking about the clothes I make, you know, I see it through a woman's perspective. I think, is this, is this going to be flattering? Is it going to give you confidence? Is it going to do a job? You know, is it value for money? You know, I, I think of those things um, as a matter of course. Where, and from my father, I suppose, I get a slightly puritanical uh, you know, my father was odd. He liked very, very, very simple things and very, very glamorous things too. So I, I think I'm, the, I'm pretty much the same there. I'm a sort of puritanical sybarite. <laughs> I love that's a new expression for me, Jasper. I think it's a wonderful one. And I think, I think at the end of the day, that really sums me up. I think that that was my father as well when I think of him. Yeah. And early in your career, because you've worked in many different areas of, of various passions, yes. um, you have so many interests. You're a polyglot or a polymath. Puritanical, sybaratic. <laughs> <laughs> but early on, were there certain risks that you took where it helped you understand where your success was going to go? Um, I was very clear from a very early age that what I wanted to be was a fashion designer. 
from a very, very early age, that was my goal, that was my aim, that was my sort of almost so... Um, I was very lucky because I, I just had this mission. And I mean, yeah, I would have liked to have been academic, but that wasn't what it was. I was very focused on, from about eight years old, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was very single-minded about that. And I'm still doing it. So <laughs> I think that when you're young, you don't see risk in the same way. You don't see it. You don't feel, or not for me. Um, I just had this mission. Being in the fashion business, business in itself is a risky business. So I suppose that I can't, I can't think of a risk because it didn't occur. And well, then did you have mentors along the way in, diff in any of your pursuits that were particularly helpful or gave you great advice? Yes, there was Mary Quant and Jean Muir. Jean Muir was wonderful to me when I was starting. Um, and were there milestones where you sort of felt like, okay, I've done it, you know, I've, I've made it, this is going to work for me? Or, you know, have you just continued to plow through things knowing with that single-minded mission that, you know, one thing leads to another? I think that I've been very fortunate in that one thing has led to another, more by accident than by design. You know, I, uh, I saw myself for many years as a fashion designer, and then I got asked to do a piece of theatre. And I, I thought, I can't do that. I don't know how to do it. And the producer said, yes, you do. Just do it. <laughs> and I won an Olivia Award for it. So all of a sudden, a whole other world came into view. Uh, which was theatre design. And I found that I could also design sets, which I did. But that wasn't because I went after it. It was, I was sort of pushed there and then, and then I got the work. And I found that I, I love that because I'd, I'd only ever worked for myself. And so working, um, I've only ever been, you know, the person everybody looked to, whereas uh, in theatre, I'm working as part of a team and I'm not the director. So, and then um, I've worked in um, interior design and architecture and worked also with very, very large companies. There again, you know, Wedgwood came along to me and uh, asked me to design ceramics for them. And I, she, I thought, I don't know how to do this. And I said, well, just, just try, just have, give it a whirl. <laughs> and I, I did, and it was very successful. You know, this was Wedgwood, who was famous for doing like decorative stuff. And I did a plain white collection for them. <laughs> uh, 
and they're still selling it. Amazing. 25 years later. So must have done something right there. And then how did you decide to open your first hotel was in Marrakesh, Lotel. What brought you to Morocco in the first place? And then what brought you to opening the hotel? Okay, so I, I've been going to Morocco all my adult life. And I, I loved it. And um, I like houses, you know, people know I like houses. They're, they're, you know, they're not stupid. And that is one of my passions. But I... I got to the point where it's like, no, you no more houses. Naughty Jasper, no more houses. And of course, at this time, I I got a, a yearning for a for a house in Morocco. <laughs> so the little devil on my shoulder said, Well, you can't have any more houses, but you could have a hotel. <laughs> and, and that's really how that happened. So that's that's what I did. And what is it that you love so much? Let's first talk about Marrakesh and the particular hotel there, which is in the in the Medina. Um, yeah. But but talk about you know for listeners who haven't been either to Marrakesh or to certainly to the hotel, tell us a little bit about what makes it special and and what drew you there. Well, I think listeners who haven't been to Marrakesh. Uh, imagine that you are close your eyes and you are transported into another world, a medieval world, a world that is just full of sounds and smells and 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 visuals that are so removed from uh, what we know as modern life. You're back in the kind of biblical place and time, uh, the way people dress and the way that they, they have food and everything, everything is foreign, if you like, <laughs> but it's romantic and charming and enchanting. And I, I suppose it's, it's this massive escape from the world most of us know into something wonderfully romantic. And how did you find the property that became the hotel? I looked and looked. I wrote down a lot of shoe leather. Um, I looked at maybe 120 different places over a period of time until I found this wonderful place, which is part of an old Kaido palace which, in other words, the palace of the Kaid. The Kaid would have been the senior senior person in the city. So you get, basically, you have the, in the structure in, in Morocco, you'd have the king, then you'd have the wali, who's the governor of the whole region, then you'd have the Kaid. And obviously, they were very powerful people. Uh, so they had jolly nice houses. Anyway, so this is this is uh, the main part of 18th century Kaido Palace, and it's uh, you you come in. You know the marvelous thing about Marrakesh 
is that it's most of the secrets are behind closed doors. Uh, so you come off a very sort of unprepossessing alleyway through the doors, down the corridor, and suddenly you're in this incredible courtyard, which is enclosed on all four sides by rooms. And then it has a beautiful garden in the middle. So you've got fountains and banana trees and lemon trees. And it's, it's a completely transporting scenario. And what were some of your, the lessons that you learned, Jasper, in running your first hotel? Well, <laughs> um, I think the, the, the lesson of any hotel is really that the first thing that people really appreciate and love is the service. You, it doesn't matter how beautiful the room is, how beautiful the food is, how beautiful what I found out is the really great service and making people feel cared for and nurtured is the thing that people appreciate the most. I think you're totally right. What was the hardest or the biggest challenge or surprise for you going from being a designer to, to actually running and owning a hotel? Well, I have to say, because it's a small hotel, mine. It's not, this isn't a, and I'm used to running, you know, I'm used to country houses. I'm used to people coming and going and, you know, that happening. So we didn't really have any nasty surprises, touch wood. I was very lucky in that I pulled together a really marvellous team of, of people who are very kind of very passionate about what they were doing. So whether they were the cooks or the housekeepers or the managers, they've remained a big kind of family unit. They're very proud of their hotel. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. If, if you've been running a, a country house well and welcoming guests, you can do the same sort of thing with a small hotel. But it, it's in a small hotel, it's more or less the same kind of structure. Yeah. So now let's talk about Tangier because yeah. <laughs> you've taken on a, a different project. Oh my party. God. <laughs> what inspired you to take on Villa Mabruca and how has it been different? Well, um, Villa Mabruca is a total surprise to me and it's still a bit of a shock because I actually went to Tangier to buy a tent. I wanted to buy a tent so we could take our customers in, in the hotel in Marrakesh out into the Eureka Valley and give them lunch in a pretty striped tent. So that's what I went there for. And while I was there, I went to see uh, an antique dealer who I hadn't seen for ages. And the last time I'd seen him, 
He had sold me what he said was Barbara Hutton's Jalaba. And I thought to myself, I bet you say that to all the boys. <laughs> and so I walked through the door and he said, ah, I know who you are. You're the guy that bought Barbara Hutton's Jalaba. <laughs> so and then I had to reassess my Jalaba thoughts. But anyway, during the conversation, he said to me, you know, I like your hotel a lot in Marrakesh, well done. Why don't you open one here in Tangier? And so I said, well, you know, actually, I probably would if I found the right property. And he said, well, Christian of Saint Laurent's house is for sale. Would you like to have a look at it? And I said to him, is the Pope Catholic? When? <laughs> and uh, so he took me along that afternoon and it was a coup de foudre, you know? It was uh, immediately, I could see what it could be. It was, you know, you just come into this extraordinary courtyard, which is full of birds and lush greenery. It's like being in suddenly last summer. And then there's this marvelous garden, just unbelievably gorgeous garden and a very extraordinary house. So I could, I almost immediately could see what it was that I could make. So I knew it could be a thing. I didn't realize quite how much work it was going to involve. <laughs> and now that it's open, because it opened in June, and I, I remember seeing you just before, in the last stretch, probably a month before you were opening. Yeah, um, a haggard piece of work. I didn't say that. <laughs> I did definitely tell you I was... Um, but it's now been open and it's been open for a little while. How has it surprised you now that guests have come in and they're experiencing what you envisioned and you've done this incredible job of mixing history and creating something new? Yes. A, I'm surprised they're guests because, you know, I was working, working so, so close to the bone every, you know, all the time the builders kept on giving me new surprises. <laughs> so the very fact that we opened is a source of wonder to me. But what is really satisfying is seeing the thing that I was thinking about on so many levels coming together and working. That's that's very romantic for me because, you know, Mabruka is, is the sum of a lot of my thoughts over all my life. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot of little bits and pieces of information that I've stored away in my brain for a later day come together in one reality. So whether, you know, it's inspirations on food, inspirations on colours, inspirations on, you know, bathroom fittings. It's, you know, it's all things that I've picked up and stored away. Um, um, 
turned into a into a project. Amazing. And how would you say that it represents Tangier? You know, for people who are thinking of going, what is it about staying at Villa Mabruca that they can expect that is distinctly Moroccan, but also distinctly Tangerine, as they say? Well, like Tangier is very, very unlike Marrakesh, for instance. It's I think of it as a sort of 1930s, 40s place. I think of it, you know, that it, it, it was expanded a lot then. It obviously has the Casbah, which is, you know, ancient. But uh, Mabruka, Mabruka is um, a house which is built around a much older house. So its foundations are could be 17th, 18th century. I certainly know because I came across the old walls when we were working on it. And, um, but Mabruka is, is, is very much a Tangier house. It, it is very representative because it's a fusion of the ancient and the modern. It's both one and the other. Uh, the gardens are very old historic gardens. They've, 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 they've been there for a very long time, whereas the house is, you know, uh, early 20th century, built around an old one. And then, but then in, in the garden is a very old pavilion. And really, I... Um, Tangier, of course, is also on the sea, which which gives it a distinct flavor. You know, you have the port, you have the fishing fishermen, uh, you have very differing influences. You know, you the, it was a, a protectorate, so it it had the Italians there, the French there, the English there, the Germans, you know, so you have all these multicultural influences there whilst being still resolutely Moroccan. So I find that that's its charm. It's like where, where cultures collide. It is it, it, anywhere that is the case in Tangier. And how did you take into account the history of the place in terms of its relationship with Yves Saint Laurent? Because he loved Morocco and, and Tangier and, and that was his house. So how did you honor that or not? Did you decide not to? Oh my God, no. I, I knew that I was that I was going to be the custodian of a piece of history. And uh, Saint Laurent for me occupies it, you know, he's has all my life been one of my heroes. So he's always, you know, been central to my beating heart. So I, and not only that, but you know, Eve and Pierre together did marvelous things for Morocco. They really did marvelous things. They drew attention to it by virtue of the fact that they so publicly loved it. The Saint Laurent Foundation, the Pierre Berger Saint Laurent Foundation, you know, 
to this day does incredible things for Morocco and Moroccans. It builds museums, it, you know, Marrakesh. It, it does things, you know, wonderful things for orphans and mothers and health and, you know, things that you might not see. Anyway, so my point is that they are embedded in the history of Morocco. And in taking on their house, I wanted to be very respectful of that history and them as people without using them. You know, it's like, this is, this is, you know, this is, I'm here, I'm doing this thing, but I have every, every respect. So, you know, if something was beautiful there, which many things were, I kept them. I didn't change the change set at all. So it was a, it's been a conservation, preservation, restoration job for me. And and I would imagine given your influences, you had the cultural influences of Morocco, you have your English background, you have other places you've traveled to that have inspired you. How did all of that come together in the design? Well, when Eve was, Eve and Pierre uh, were putting the house together when they bought it, they said to Jacques Branche, now, what you want you to imagine is that a quite eccentric English person owns this house. Um, and uh, he has not many things, but what the things that he has are good. And almost, I took, I just, I thought, I am that eccentric English person. Find uh, that out. Did Jacques Grange tell you that? No, it's a matter of record. It's 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 in an in in an interview with Jacques Grange. He says that this is what Eve said to him. Um, I also wanted to be respectful of Jacques Branche too. I wanted, you know, it's like, so I kept the colors of the doors, which are beautiful kind of sea green and aqua blue colors. And they're, they're very distinct things in the house. So yes, I feel that I, and I feel I have done this, which is to keep the air of Eve and Pierre and Jacques there whilst having done a lot of new things. And do you have a favorite part of the villa? I think that uh, my favorite part is what was Eve's bedroom, because it's just, it's a marvelous kind of suite of rooms. It's, you know, you, not, the, you've got to remember, this is actually a house. It's not a grand, grand house. It's not a, it's not a sweets and sweets and sweets. It, it, it's, you know, it's just a very beautiful house. So Eve's room has, you know, these high ceilings and a fireplace, and then it goes onto a marvelous bathroom. It's very kind of spacious. Um, and it has a terrace looking out over the Strait of Gibraltar. So all in all, and for me, that's a very satisfying room. But I also love the sitting room, which is 
windows going out onto the terrace on both sides. It's a very beautiful, airy, light, delicious room. And can you describe, Jasper, what your what a perfect weekend or three days in Tangier would be for somebody who's never been before? Well, yes, I can. You get up in obviously one of our lovely sweets. <laughs> you have breakfast. You listen to the birds. You go down to the pool. You spend the morning reading and swimming. And then you have lunch by the pool. <laughs> and uh, then you go and have a little rest. Then you have a cocktail on the roof. Then you have dinner on the terrace. Then the next day, you go out and you investigate the Casbah, uh, which is, you know, you can spend the day doing that very happily. Or you can go down to the port and look around there and go to the sea. Um, one of my favorite things to do there is actually go to the fish market. And because of course it's such a, you know, you've got the fleets of fish and go out in the morning and you can see them. You can see the fleet of these little boats going out and then coming back in the evening. The fish market is to me, one of the most fun things and I, I I love markets in any event. Um and then um you know I think the thing about Tangier is that it really depends on what angle you want to look at it at. You know um in my ideal world I'd go and see Umberto Pasti's garden which I think is one of the most, you know, Tangier has these amazing different houses and gardens, which you will know because you've been there. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the, you know, to me, one of the seven wonders of the world is Umberto Pasti's garden. Yeah. Um, so. And you're talking about Rahuna. Well, well, no, I'm not. I'm talking about Tangier. What in town? I really like, I mean, Rahuna, I would definitely go out and see for sure. But um, yeah, that's what I'd do. And is there a favorite time of the year to visit for you, Jasper, or that you would recommend to people? I would go in May. May, I love. June, I love. What what month am I not going to say is good? <laughs> no i'm with you though i do i do love may and june and and september october frankly yeah i love august there too i have to say because it, it's a quite a temperate climate it doesn't get boiling hot and certainly doesn't in my garden you're listening to passport to everywhere as we hear from British designer Jasper Conran about his new hotel, Villa Mabruca in Tangier. If you're interested in exploring Villa Mabruca and Tangier, consider joining me next May on our special design trip. 
Details can be found on indigari.com slash insider journeys. Plus, later on, I'll be sharing discoveries from my recent travels to Florence and revealing travel tips for how to travel with your pet over the holiday season. Explore the future of travel with Melissa Biggs Bradley on Passport to Everywhere, streaming now on all podcast platforms. And for more on Melissa's work, follow Indigari Travel on Instagram. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. If you're feeling inspired to travel, I thought now would be a great time to share some intel from my recent travels. Here's what's on Melissa's radar this week. I just returned from leading our inaugural Indigari trip to Florence, where we focused on immersion and meeting with locals who shared access to the special palazzos and collections that are rarely seen by visitors. Among my favorite discoveries are the brand new linen brand started by the Pertesi family and the beautiful housewares line from the shoe designer behind Aquazura. You can find details on both on our Indigari website. What I didn't get to see yet, but will return for, is the secret room under the Medici chapels in Florence, which has drawings by Michelangelo on the walls that have never been viewed by the public, but will be open starting this month. Discovered nearly 50 years ago, this secret room is where Michelangelo is believed to have hidden for a number of weeks and drew on walls almost 500 years ago. Tickets will cost 32 euros and will include access to the Medici tombs, Visits to the secret room will be limited to groups of four for only 15 minutes each. And in order to protect the drawings, there will be a 45-minute lights-out period in between each visit. I'll be sharing more details on these and many other finds in upcoming Indigari newsletters, so be sure to sign up and subscribe at Indigari.com. I hope you find these discoveries valuable as you plan your travels. Now let's hear more from Jasper. Now, are there any other destinations aside from Morocco and England, Jasper, that have had really profound impacts on you professionally or your eye? For sure, France and Italy, for sure, for sure, and India. Yeah. And India, the moment I landed, I felt at home. Do you know, some places you just feel totally comfortable in from work go, and I would say sort of on on all fronts, the moment I landed in India, I loved it. For similar reasons that I loved Marrakesh, you know, similar reasons. Also, I have to say going down the Nile on a boat was one of my one of my all-time highs. And then of course Machu Picchu, that was definitely wonderful to go to yeah all our civilizations i mean india egypt peru are these great civilizations where you can as you said access the real ancient fibers of them as well as something that's sort of been passed down and is modern yet still really holds on to the ancient I, th- I think that these ancient, the remnants of these ancient civilizations being as intact as they are, is just miraculous. And, you know, the fact that we can go there. I always, you know, every time I go up in a plane, I think I can do what Elizabeth I could not do. Yeah. And are there places that you still want to go? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of England I haven't explored. You know, there's a lot of my own backyard. I want to go around the uh, Western Isles of Scotland. I'd like to go to Vietnam. I'd like to go to elements of China. I would like to, this is a fun game. <laughs> Yeah, but, but there's a good group there. You could put them all together in a spinning wheel and dial it and see where you go next. You know, I, I been going to Japan all my life. And, you know, not only the jet lag, but the work that I have to do is pretty grueling. And you get, it's always compressed into the time. And every time I go, uh, Japanese hosts say to me, we're going to take you to Kyoto. But always, by that time, the only thing I can think of is my home and bed. So I've never been to Kyoto. So I would like to go to Kyoto, but via a very slow boat, so I don't have jet lag. That's great. And if you were to go back to India, Jasper, I'm curious, are there favorite places in India that you, that you always go to or that you would like to go back to? Well... I, I know Rajasthan pretty well, and I've been to, and where I would say is I just loved, that I haven't been to for a very long time, is um, Kashmir. Kashmir, to be, on a, to be on a houseboat in Kashmir in the rain with the flower sellers coming and is something just remarkable. What you just said sounds like the first lines of a poem. To be in Kashmir on a houseboat with the flower sellers coming down. In the rain. In the rain. It's a kind of soft drizzle. Down. Uh -huh. You know, you think, you think, well, I think it's it's a very remembrance of things past, you know. That that feeling that you don't necessarily have at the time, but you get very, very romantically drawn to when you think about it. Have you read or heard, Jasper, about this book that's just come out called Bittersweet? No. It's it's apparent, I haven't read it yet, but I'm dying to, but what you're talking about reminds me, it, it's sort of about the value of longing and sorrow. Yeah. I was thinking the other day about the smell and the atmosphere of French cafes. When, and it's that mixture of Gauloise and Pano. Those are, those, are, those are smells that you're never gonna to find together in that same way again. You know, since we're talking about it, that, you know, I was thinking about how that smell, I can smell it now, how wonderful that was. Obviously and, very bad for everybody's health, but still a wonderful smell. And, and speaking of memories, Jasper, do you have, I assume that you met Eve. Um, I didn't, I knew Pierre, but I never met Eve. Okay. Poor me. 
Yeah, poor all of us. But you're living, you know, you're continuing his legacy and his love for for Marrakesh and for for Tangier and yeah. the whole of Morocco. So, but I think the thing, the thing as well that I found very very touching was that the reason that he bought the Lamabruka in the first place was that he'd been born in Oran in Algeria and by and they lived by the sea and he I have seen a film of him talking about his very very happy childhood how much he loved his childhood and so Mabruka was very much an escape back into his childhood you know it's a, it for him it was a very recognizable sort of step back to a time when he was very very happy which was not all of his life um so i feel very you know that is a very touching thing for me to feel that i'm looking after yeah no it's it's an honor to be able to do that. Uh, one last question. If you had to describe what the greatest gift of travel was to you, what would you say? The greatest gift of travel for me is to be able to experience the sights and the sounds and the smells and the colors and the temperatures and the atmosphere and the people that I'm not going to encounter in my daily life. You know, that 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 is a pearl beyond price. I think, you know, it alters your perceptions. You see things, you know, you grow through travel, you grow through seeing things, you grow through meeting people, you grow through seeing other cultures. So, you know, we're, we're given one life and travel to me enriches it immeasurably. Special thanks to Jasper for joining me today to talk about the design and inspiration behind his new hotel in Tangier. For more on Jasper, follow at Jasper Conran and at Jasper Conran London on Instagram. And if you're interested in experiencing the creative community of Tangier, head to Indigari.com to learn about our Indigari group trip happening in 2024. Do you believe that travel can change lives and perspectives? Not surprisingly, I do, and I've often witnessed its transformative power in big and small moments, sometimes on this podcast. I'm interested in hearing about the role that travel has played in other people's lives and extracting lessons to facilitate more transformative travel moments. To that end, we're launching a global survey of passionate travelers. The survey will take roughly 10 to 15 minutes to complete, depending on the length of your answers. It can be completed in multiple sessions and can be entered anonymously or not. Those who want to share their emails will be entered to win a three-night stay in Paris. I hope you'll take part in this global survey and share your experiences. Head to my Instagram at Indigari Founder for a link to participate. Keep listening for today's travel hack on how to travel with pets as smoothly as possible. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Listen to new episodes Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. 
Experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. As Thanksgiving approaches, many of us will be traveling for the holidays, and some of us will want to have our pets by our side. So on this week's Travel Hack, I'll be sharing tips for jet-setting with your pets. The journey together can sound both fun and daunting, so it's important to plan ahead carefully for a smooth ride. First, choose the airline correctly. Regardless of the airline, you've got to book a direct flight if possible to reduce all the moving parts. That said, remember that each airline has its own rules and regulations for pet travel. So it's important to do your research to find the airline that best suits your needs. Turkish Airlines, for example, recently introduced a new online service through which you can book pet carrier services at the same time that you book your own ticket, which streamlines the experience. No need to call ahead and no concern that you'll be hit with extra fees after the initial booking. The service covers both in-cabin and aircraft hold options with varying stipulations for all of your different pets, from cats and dogs to small birds. It's also a good idea to book your flight well in advance and inform the airline that you will be traveling with a pet so they can provide any additional guidance. For example, when it comes to fully trained service dogs, some airlines will allow them in the cabin without a carrier. On the other hand, not all airlines will accommodate emotional support animals, which must travel as pets. Either way, be sure to check the necessary requirements. Canine Jets is another new option to have on your radar. This pet-friendly private jet allows your furry friends to fly by your side in a luxury cabin. Crates are not required for dogs, but cats must be placed in their carriers. The service provides a relaxed, stress-free environment without the restrictions of a commercial flight. The other thing that you need to keep in mind is your pet's health. Keep in mind that short-nosed pets like pugs and Persian cats are more likely to have trouble breathing properly during air travel, so it's best to get your veterinarian's opinion before you take the trip. You can also look at scheduling flights during the cooler parts of the day to alleviate the stressor. No matter which pet you're flying with, you should talk with your veterinarian before you leave to ensure that your pet is fit for travel. A vet can also provide advice on managing your pet's anxiety and motion sickness and offer guidance using pet-friendly supplements or prescriptions. Now think about what to pack. Whether your pet is traveling by cabin or cargo, prepare a travel kit that includes essentials. You'll need plenty of food, water, medications, and comfort items like blankets and toys. Chew toys in particular can help with a dog's ears in terms of acclimatizing to the change in air pressure. Familiarize your pet with the carrier or crate leading up to the trip, too, so they already feel cozy and safe inside this space. If your pet is joining you in the cabin, check your airline rules for pet size, carrier dimensions, and other requirements. During the flight, keep your pet calm and entertained with their favorite toys and treats. It's also helpful to bring cleaning supplies, such as wipes, in case there's an accident. Skip breakfast for your pet on the day of the flight to reduce the risk of nausea, but as I said previously, talk with your veterinarian first. And remember to have a leash handy, as you'll have to remove your pet from its carrier before it goes through the x-ray machine during the security checkpoints. Once you and your pet are through screening, you can place them back in the carrier. Locate the nearest pet relief area and be sure to take your pet for a restroom break pre-flight. It's always a good idea, too, to bring puppy pads in case your pet is uncomfortable or chooses not to go in those designated areas. 
And once you've arrived at your gate, try asking the gate agents if you can board early. Sometimes they won't allow it, but sometimes they do. And even just a few extra minutes on the plane can help you find time to situate your pet a little more comfortably. Those of you who have to fly cargo, I want to point out that the ASPCA recommends only flying with your pet if you can bring them into the cabin with you. While airports do have the best intentions for pet cargo travel, there are far more variables, and there is more room for things to go wrong. Plus, new sounds, smells, and environments can be very unnerving for your animal. If you do decide to use the aircraft hold, be sure to use a USDA-approved crate so your pet can stand, sit, and turn comfortably. It's also recommended to label the crate with the words live animal in large letters, including your destination information, phone number, and a current photo of your pet on top. Along with your pet's travel bed and favorite toys and food and water, line the space with absorbent padding for any accidents. Close the crate securely, but do not lock it just in case the staff needs to open it during an emergency. And it's also important to keep your pet's identification up to date. Make sure they're wearing a collar with a tag that includes your information and the destination information. For added security, consider microchipping your pet or using an Apple AirTag. Make sure your pet's documentation is easily accessible too for whenever you're asked to provide it. Finally, once you've reached your destination, be sure to go on a walk to familiarize your pet with their new surroundings and enjoy your trip with your furry friend by your side. And remember, traveling by air with your pet can be complex, so it requires careful planning and booking, but it's also rewarding. By following airline requirements, preparing a pet travel kit, and talking with your veterinarian, you can expect a safe and comfortable journey for both you and hopefully your companion. Thanks for joining me today as we explored the creative work of British designer Jasper Conran and his new hotel in Tangier. If you're interested in experiencing the magic of Tangier yourself, head to indigari.com slash insiderjourneys to sign up for the trip I'll be hosting Inside Tangier, Private Houses and Gardens, taking place next year from May 19th to the 24th. And as I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to know how the travel industry can help those impacted by the recent earthquake in Morocco, check out Indigari COO Eliza Harris's story on Indigari.com, where she shares the organizations providing critical help. One we love at Indigari is Education for All, a Morocco-based nonprofit which supports the education of young Berber women. Education for All builds and runs boarding houses for young women aged 12 to 18 and provides food and lodging with computer access and tutoring help. All of their boarding houses were severely damaged by the earthquake, and they are currently working on short-term and long-term projects to rebuild the houses and assist the communities where the girls are from. Next week, I'll be taking us to Ireland as I speak with Indigare's director of group trips, John Cantrell, about his tips for traveling in the country before speaking with our guest, Liam Creeble, in our latest episode of Hotel Legends, on the historic Ballyfin Hotel in the Irish countryside. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode, so don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram 
at at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley is moving. Soon, Passport to Everywhere will only be available exclusively on the SiriusXM app. Get ready now by downloading the SiriusXM app or joining at SiriusXM.com. Already a subscriber? Add Passport to Everywhere to your favorites to keep enjoying the show.